Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's investor podcast series, which focuses on bringing our listeners the latest investment insights. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development at QIC. And when COVID-19 hit, it's safe to say the early analysis around the impacts of the Australian economy and the way it recovered centred on the hopes of a V-shaped economic recovery. But as the pandemic has continued to evolve and the impacts to our communities, our businesses, markets and economies, we're left in a socially distant environment. So that shape of the recovery is being tested and challenged constantly. So today I'm very pleased to welcome to QPod two key players in our investment industry, Alison Hill, the Deputy CIO at QIC's State Investment Office, and Troy Reek, who's the CIO of LGIA Super. Welcome, Alison, and welcome, Troy. Thanks, Craig. Afternoon, Craig. So I'm going to be asking the questions that are on everyone's minds today about how deep the economic impact will be and how long you believe our trip towards recovery is going to realistically take. This is no small feat, Alison and Troy, so especially against a, a constantly evolving backdrop. Are you ready? Absolutely. Okay, so the first question, let's start with some of the basics. Uh, the economic recovery has been described as a V, a squashed V, an L, a U, a W, a squashed square root, the Nike swoosh, and more recently, the staircase. My personal favourite has always been that squashed square root, but with those hopes of a V-shaped economic recovery somewhat receding, consensus currently rests with an L, a U, or a W, somewhere in between. Troy, could I please start with you? Which one are you and why are you that shape? Uh, Craig, I'm going to go for something completely different. I'm a fan of the inverted shark fin. Turn it upside down and back to front. We get that steep, steep fall off an economic recovery, sorry, an economic activity early on in the year. We walk around the bottom here for a short period of time where we start to recover, and then the recovery starts to pick up speed. Right? And we, we eventually get back towards what's a relatively normal level of economic recovery. So I think the shape's important, but there's two aspects to that which, for me, matter more than anything else. One is that there should be a, a narrow and shallow economic fall-off. That's what we're all hoping for, instead of a wide and deep one. That's the terrifying outcome. But there's something that matters even more than that. COVID-19 is going to be important for the next six to 12 months, and hopefully no longer than that. What I'm most interested in is what happens to the slope of economic activity on the other side. We're all hoping that it comes out at the same level. What I'm concerned about is that COVID-19 may have actually changed the economy for permanent purposes, much like we saw after the GFC. That's what I'm most interested in in this process. Oh, wow, impressive stuff. And Alison, I'm going to keep this a little bit light at the start. So what's your take on this inverted shark fin? And pardon this very bad joke, but will we need a bigger boat? <laughs> need a bigger boat or maybe a bathtub to a... No, look, there's all sorts of different shapes that we have talked about. I guess, you know, for a while I was thinking we, we were looking at a bathtub, which is, I guess, a, a ride along the bottom and then a recovery up the back end. But I think we're probably now more of a of a stylized tick where we're going to have that sharp drop but then we will have a recovery but that recovery won't be as sharp and as swift as the drop down so i think we will to troy's second query which i think is incredibly important we will recover but we won't recover i don't think back to that level that we were uh, previously so we're going to you know see a good level of growth but it won't be at the same we won't be back, taking us back to the same point that we were when we started and look that has you know real implications for certain segments of the economy and you know just prospects looking forward as as we saw out coming out of the gfc where we saw a relatively lackluster uh, economic recovery despite the fact we had an incredibly strong market recovery recovery 
like we've like we've seen recently. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Some of these environments, like we're seeing with COVID nineteen, could force some effectively some some evolution uh, that would normally take a lot longer. So, really like those descriptions. And as part of those markets' fascination with getting the shape right. The shape of our economic recovery might also depend on which industry lens you're looking through. So, Alison, perhaps we can start with you. What's your take on this approach of uh, of the recovery and depending on that industry lens? And how do you see it recovering differently across those various industries? I think it's a really important thing to think about. Um, you know, we saw it before the crisis, actually, there was some, some sectors that were sort of, I guess, winning, um, so to speak, in that we had, you know, strong growth from healthcare given our ageing population. And we also had tremendous growth in, in IT and technology. And I think those sectors that were winning before are going to, you know, continue to win. And I think our recent experience has probably only exacerbated the take up and the you know the acceleration of our use of technology look at us now all on all on teams and all these sorts of stuff all these things that we didn't think we could work from home at, you know not that long ago as efficiently as we are so i think we'll see those sectors continuing to really strive forward but what will it mean for other parts of the economy where perhaps we will maybe adjust our behaviors some some temporarily but some things may be somewhat more permanently as we think about you know what is really you know, a health security crisis in many ways. Until such time as we find a vaccine, the virus will be present in the community. And so I think, you know, people's behaviours will adjust. And so there'll be certain segments, you know, those that are particularly service related. So your your restaurants, your pubs, your clubs, your, your cafes, um, you know, we've got issues with um, education, with large parts of our um, tertiary education sector exposed to, to overseas students. And that's seeing a drop off of around about 20% of their revenue. I mean, it's really quite significant for certain segments of the market but others we're seeing you know I think are natural winners and then there's others that in the short term the government are trying to provide support and get them through this difficult period and and even today we had the scheme announced by um, Scott Morrison in relation to trying to provide support to the building and construction sector which is obviously very important for you know grassroots Australian economy. Yeah, that's right. And obviously the NASDAQ agrees with you too, Alison, because it's been uh, absolutely thriving over the last couple of months. Um, Troy, I wouldn't mind taking this question a little bit further and extending it into the which industries that you're watching for their ability to survive this downturn and then thrive in that rebound as well. Yeah, I really do like that framework of watching things that have been thriving versus watching things that have been struggling. So if you've been manufacturing Campbell's Soup, or you're the, the software creator behind Zoom, life's been very good in the last three months. I very much doubt that life's going to be like that in the next 12 to 18. So if I'm thinking about places to try and invest some money, I'm looking for those that have really suffered in the last three or so months. Uh, and in particular, you look for places where you think they're still going to benefit from a secular trend. Alison talked about technology eating the world. I still think that one goes on. The more interesting thing, though, for me, Craig, is how you express that idea in a portfolio. There are plenty of industries out there that have been absolutely hammered. It's a nice technical term. You can look at energy. Energy suffering at the present time. Banking systems around the world are under significant pressure from low and flat yield curves, one of the consequences of quantitative easing. There are places where you think about the cyclical impacts, what we're seeing right now in COVID-19, but also those secular trends. So if you can find things that have been beaten up in the short term, but long term should bounce back, that's exactly where you want to pick over the world. And then you're trying to work out how you express that idea in a portfolio. So one of the things that we've been thinking about here, for example, is that rather than naturally expressing these ideas by buying various parts of the equity market, maybe we're better off looking at credit, just a different way to express the idea. 
on the basis that credit's further up the, the capital structure and it's probably a safer way to try and take that extra risk. You certainly got the support of the Fed there as well, Troy. Um, so let's start to look at some of the elephants in the room, the financial markets, for example. In the US, it's been very much on that V-shaped trajectory. Uh, early in the COVID environment, we were virtually on a roller coaster with regards to diving down historical lows ahead of the economic data. In the past week or so, we've seen some really sharp swings on the upside, particularly in some of those unloved sectors you referred to, Troy, such as travel. Um, so is there any difference in the recovery pace between the markets and the economic indicators, or is it just noise as a CIO? And how important is it in anal- analysing these differences in trends between the markets and the economic indicators? Maybe I can start with you there, Troy. Yeah, I think that job of trying to pull apart the signal from the noise is the thing that keeps CIOs awake forever. What we're seeing at the present time looks completely discombobulating. Markets going up at a time when the US economy has 45 million unemployed and we've got riots on the street and the guardhouse outside the White House is on fire. That just doesn't feel right. When you go back and have a look at history, though, people might remember the Rothschild example. Why when when there's blood on the streets? We've seen plenty of examples the last 150 years when we get these sorts of events that just don't seem to make sense. They really don't. I think there is a strong disconnect at the present time between what financial markets are doing and what people refer to as that long-term economic or fundamental view on markets. But I think it's very consistent with this rapid shift we've seen from both central banks, you mentioned the Fed, and investor sentiment. If people are now much more relieved about the prospects around COVID-19, I think they're much more likely to have a positive disposition to risk assets. We hear these stories about folks sitting at home on their Robinhood trading accounts, buying into stocks at a rapid rate. I think to myself, this is a new facet of the markets that we didn't face in 2007-8 and certainly didn't face in 2000 to the same extent. Alison, do you have a similar view or do you see there being this disconnect between the markets or is it just always the way it should be, but we're just seeing it at a slightly different pace this time around? Look, I think markets are always forward-looking. So I think we do most of the time markets look ahead of what they see in economic news and they are certainly buoyed by you know, the, the what is a post-COVID relief as, as the, you know, people emerge from lockdown and and so on. But the pace in the, of this recovery is, in my mind, quite extraordinary and perhaps, perhaps a little bit beyond where I thought it would go this quickly, given how bad the economic data is. And we've also still got a lot of other risks out there, including, you know, escalating tensions between China and US in terms of trade, uh, trade matters. We've got Brexit, which is not too far away as well. You know, so there is a lot of issues that, that the world is dealing with to see such positivity in the markets. But, you know, supporting that is this incredibly, you know, significant amount of, of both monetary support being provided by the central banks globally, um, particularly in the developed markets, and also the fiscal support. Um, and the fiscal support absolutely dwarfs anything that was provided in by governments in the GFC to what we're seeing now. So that level of support is really um, making sure that consumer I- incomes, at least in the short term, are maintained. And that is providing, I guess, um, shorter term confidence in that market. And then we have got yeah people sitting at home trading, which we haven't had before. But some of that um, central bank action, buying, doing things like buying sub-investment grade credit subject to certain caveats in terms of, you know, the fallen angels and buying ETFs. And, you know, we're really seeing much broader support than we've ever seen before. It's the almost the colloquial whatever it takes to keep markets functioning. And that provides a really strong backstop um, and a lot of strength to those, you know, in the markets. And, then you overlay that with the fact that yield curves are, 
you know, there are positively sloping, um, but there's fairly de minimis levels of return. And if you look forward, potentially we might see even lower levels of return there. And then if you're not getting returns from bonds and cash, then you have to get returns from somewhere. So where do you go? So we will see people move up the risk curve and, and equities is, is liquid and, and, you know, people are, when they're discounting, you know, those companies with strong cash flows, maybe seeing still reasonable levels of value. So it's a really difficult environment and it's, you know, one that is hard to sort of, I think, as I think Troy summed it up well, sort of that the market indicators versus the economic indicators, there is a, you know, really significant dispersion and it's, um, Something that you know, I spent a lot of time trying to think about how do we how do we manage through this environment. And certainly, the uh, consumer confidence numbers starting to improve would suggest that the markets were seeing it quite clearly. So yeah, thank you, Alison, and uh, that forward-looking uh, comment you made before. You also touched before around that fiscal and I suppose monetary support, and in some ways, that GFC playbook is. Uh, certainly being played out much more swiftly this time around. Um, in the past, the bond market has been more of a, a market recovery, but with this unprecedented and joint monetary and fiscal policy ex- expansion and that central bank intervention, that's been sort of cast aside. So what is the alternative? Can we explore it a little bit further? And if you put those regulatory risks to the side, which markets are the preferred way to anticipate some of these economic movements in this environment, Alison? Look, I think um, I, I would agree with Troy in that we're sort of interested in the credit space. I think um, we still have a, a healthy exposure to equities, but I think in terms of having broader diversification across that capital stack, I think if we can find companies that have strong fundamentals and, you know, I think we can have confidence in their forward-looking cash flows, then that's that's a good part of the portfolio. So we will be, you know, we are thinking about our exposures there in sort of what people might call private private debt, um, both domestically and internationally. Um, I think also, you know, markets can take some time to cycle through and we haven't seen that just, you know, typical distressed cycle post this environment yet, but we could well do so um, and we might see some distressed debt investment. So that could be something to to be interested. Again, if you want, you have to be very focused on the cash flows and the robustness of those cash flows in what could be, you know, a reshaped type of environment. Um, but I, I'd echo those sort of things of looking at cash flows, looking at the duration of those cash flows and the security of those cash flows for all types of assets. So I think, you know, secure assets like infrastructure, uh, property um, and other real assets will, will be of really attractive characteristics. And then, you know, turning the tide slightly, looking for growth, I think private equity has some really interesting opportunity sets whereby, you know, they're investing in the new and emerging opportunities that, you know, from a from a bottom-up basis. And so we can uh, look to get some, I think, hopefully better, uh, higher levels of return from that space. Thanks, Alison. I did say at the start of that question, Troy, putting regulatory risk aside. So with that in mind, and, and again, you did sort of mention credit before, but one of the things that Alison just picked up on there is this idea of this illiquidity risk as well. How do you see that when it comes to your portfolio going forward with regards to that economic movement anticipation? Yes. Yeah, so one of the jobs that you try and do as a CIO here is, is, as I said, pull apart the signals from the noise. So people are probably familiar with Campbell Harvey's work on the forecasting power of the inverted yield curve. So when the yield curve in the US inverted in the second half of 2019, that was a signal that worse times were coming. I'm not going to say that the yield curve was forecast and that COVID-19 was coming, but it was talking to us about the economy was already in a weakened state before we went into this health crisis. Things weren't all that good. So you watch the bond market for the signs of economic activity falling away quite quickly. But I think you probably watch equities for signs of economic activity coming back. 
And so it does very much depend upon which market you want to look at and the sort of things you're trying to pull out. The other one people watch, of course, is the US dollar. There's pretty powerful signals in there about what happens when the US dollar broadly strengthens versus broadly weakens. The extent to which the US dollar now seems to have started weakening, supplying liquidity to the rest of the world, that's a pretty good indicator about people's risk-taking attitudes at the present time. So one of the analogies that people were using for me around here recently was that growth shocks are like bullies with a megaphone. Everybody can see them coming and hear them coming. Bonds see them coming from a miles away and they react. The one that we're not talking about, and it's hard to find the signals at the present time, so it's a little bit of gut instinct. I'm happy to call it that. It's inflation. Inflation's a bit more like a ninja. It sneaks up in you and no one sees it coming, and then one day you turn around and it's standing right next to you. So I prefer the liquid markets if you're trying to read how people are viewing the, the world and picking out economic signals. But if I'm thinking about my investment portfolio, I'm a big fan of the liquid assets. Um, I'm very much on the same page with Alison there. We love those stable cash flows from infrastructure assets. Anything that can help put money into members' account balances, I'm all for that. Yeah, I think, Troy, this week as well, we've seen a little bit of the uptick in the inflation levels as well, or sort of inflation pricing, I should say. So uh, perhaps uh, your ninja techniques there are very, uh, very sharp. Um, with regards to, um, uh, I suppose, changing gears a little bit and this investment implications uh, that we're seeing in this COVID world. So with CIOs with a longer term investment horizon, would it be safe to say that you're looking ahead at the opportunities you have? Are you considering those asset classes which are not tied to normal economic activity? And, uh, and perhaps you might have already answered this question, but I'll ask the question in a slightly different way and see what answer we get out of this one. Where are you seeing those growth tailwinds? Yeah, uh, for me, there's the cyclical versus the secular framework. I, I really do like that one from Alison. Technology eating the world, we get that. If I'm looking purely from a cyclical perspective, you look for stuff that people hate. Right. Credit's still got a bit of an ick factor about it, another one of those technical terms. And two other ones, value, value and small caps. Find me a value fan in the current world. I think the prospects for value in the next five years look a lot better than they did in the previous five years. I also think Australia's in an interesting position here, right, both short-term and long-term. We've clearly got some challenges, but at the same point in time, China seems to have done pretty well. Coming out the back of this, if the Chinese decide to stimulate the economy and they're consistent with their previous behaviours, we're pretty well positioned for benefiting from that. And I'm looking at an iron ore price here close to $100 a tonne. I'm feeling pretty good about it. On the secular side of things, you know, Alison mentioned infrastructure and private equity, healthcare type approaches. It's pretty hard to argue with that. Crises tend to accelerate changes that are already underway. So the extent to which we're currently facing issues around, for example, the workplace, our healthcare system, our ability to strip costs out of the economy, it's hard to see how those changes won't accelerate. Yeah, maybe I'll second just pick up one of those areas there. And Troy, we're loving all these new technical terms you're bringing to us at the moment. Uh, but maybe I could just uh, quickly focus in on that, that healthcare area. And does that have that secular sort of approach and that growth tailwind that Troy was sort of um, referencing before, or do you see it differently? No, I think absolutely it does. I mean, if you think globally, we have an ageing population. Um, we also have emerging markets that are becoming increasingly wealthy, China being you know, a significant one of those, but obviously many other uh, countries as well that are looking to increase their level of their life expectancy and their ability to access other, other forms of medicine and healthcare. So it is a real, you know, if you think about the order of priority about how we, we treat things, and I think, you know, health is 
first and foremost when we think about our, our families and loved ones and we want to make sure that we can have healthy and, and happy lives. So I think that healthcare trend is is only going to continue um, and we're on the forefront of so many scientific breakthroughs and being in the right area of those breakthroughs which you, you may be able to participate in as being, a, being in private equity is really valuable. But, you know, then you've also got hospitals and, and other areas um, whether they be, you know, that you can participate in from a from an infrastructure perspective um, which provide more, I guess, more regular cash flows but are going to have consistent demand given the nature of, you know, it's it's a very non-discretionary kind of item. So I think I, t- I very much agree there. Awesome. Thank you. So one of the little areas you mentioned before, Alison, was Brexit. And, you know, I, for one, was almost forgotten about Brexit. And then obviously more recently we've had COVID. But just in the last week or two, we've had more geopolitical sort of style risk come to us. You mentioned the China-US sort of situation at the moment. Of course, this week we've got the very unfortunate situation of watching across the world, the US sort of un- civil unrest is starting to unfold in front of us. Um, there's all these themes that are starting to sort of continually pop up. And when you look at that return around the active versus passive debate, I wouldn't mind taking our attention there. So how do you guys look at the active uh, management in this current environment? Is it the right time to start reconsidering it or has passive still got its role? I think both active and passive would continue to, to have roles. But I think, you know, I would be turning an increasing lens towards active management in this environment, just just on the basis that I think that we are going to go through some, some genuine changes. Um, and there will be companies, governments around the world have thrown, as I said before, incredible amounts of support. And we are, you know, so therefore we're seeing companies sort of surviving through this period, but that support won't last forever. And as we come out of this environment, we still have got in, in Australia, 600,000 unemployed as a result of COVID and, and I think, you know, in excess of 40 million in America. I mean, they're, they're significant numbers. And so once that support drops off and it can't last forever because the government simply can't take on that extra level of debt in, ad infinitum and the debt that they've taken on now is quite incredible. So how do we come out of this? Which companies are going to survive and which companies are going to fail? Um, and there will be some that will thrive as well. So we do need to think about, um, I think, the sectors that will be winners. And I think we also then need to think about the geographies that are winners, those geographies that are America in terms of its share market has done incredibly well the big five, the FANG stocks, but it's focus on technology and innovation, um, more new economy rather than old economy. So I think there are areas that, you know, are going to lean themselves towards more active returns. And another one I would point towards as well, I think, is those stocks that are going to benefit from, I guess, investors who I think have an increasingly large focus on responsible investing and and particularly climate change and those assets that could be in danger from being on the wrong side of climate change and those assets that will, that have adapted or are adapting um, to make sure that we are looking after the, the world in which we live. And I think investors are continuing to focus on those types of things as we focus on these some of these you know what what are social issues that we're seeing around the world that people are rallying against. I love the way you picked up on that ESG theme, Alison, because I have to say it's the one sort of theme which has probably showed some resilience through this whole market environment. So thank you for holding on to that one. Troy, maybe I can ask the question slightly differently to you. Do you think the environment at the moment is now ripe for active management uh, or do you question it? I think this is the ultimate lose-lose conversation, Craig. The question for any investor is you're trying to work out where your edge is. Where do you have a, a special piece of insight or greater risk tolerance or a greater capacity to find those folks who can add value compared to a, let's call it an index rather than passive. You know, So it's a question about how much active and what type, where to be active and how much to pay for it. I certainly think that there are folks out there who can do this well, but for most of us, we have to care about our fee budgets. 
So there are places in the, the global capital markets, you know, like the US large caps, which I think are particularly difficult to find active management returns in. We'd rather spend our fee budgets looking at other areas in particular. I think private markets are a better place in general. But having said that, I do think it's an absolutely a great time for every investor to be thinking about risk, try and work out what risks they're taking and how much they like them or don't like them. If that's actively management, managing a portfolio, I absolutely think that's the right thing to do. Yeah, good call, Troy. And we're getting into an area now which we're never going to win, which is that net of fee versus uh, total fee argument. So let's move on, shall we? Um, so with markets bifurcating, uh, those geopolitical tensions I mentioned before, we've also got that anchored capital charge that both Troy, you and Alison also mentioned, now solely in place. How are you starting to position your portfolios? And maybe I can ask in a slightly different way. Is the SAA still relevant or is it now all about being tactical? Alison, would you mind me starting with you? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Craig. I think SAA has its place because you need to consider to think about, I guess, your what level of risk your members or in QIC's case, um, you know, underlying, you know, state government entities are willing to take. And therefore, that's a way, I guess, of modelling or expressing that risk and, and then moving around that. But once you've got that level of risk tolerance accepted, I think broadly diversified portfolio will always make sense. But if there's areas of, of better risk adjusted return, I think tactically moving towards those makes makes absolute sense. So I think that probably falls more into that realm of total portfolio approach or TPA. Um, and if you can do that, you can probably break down some of those traditional barriers of what might purely be in a strict asset class in its strict sense to just go, is this a good investment? Does it have good solid cash flows? Um, would it be accretive to my portfolio? And therefore, if the answer to those questions is yes, then um, that's something that as an investor is good to think about. Thanks, Alison. And, and Troy, do you have a similar view? Is it still that SAA and potentially DA tactical sort of tilting, which is going to be uh, persistent through portfolio management or is there potential change on the horizon? The strategic asset allocation idea has reti been retired more times than John Farnham. It still keeps coming back for another tour. And the basic fact is that every investor needs some sort of an anchor for their decision making. So Alison talked about, you know, some sort of sense of your average risk level. I'll, I'll use a boating analogy. You need to have an anchor. You can occasionally move that anchor. You can be upstream of the anchor or downstream of the anchor, but you don't want to be drifting all over the place in the ocean or the river. So I still think the SAA has a pretty important role for the for most investors. You can look at the academic evidence on this, Brinson, Hood and Bebauer, you know, 90 to 100% of the outcomes basically determined by your strategic asset allocation. So the question is, when does an anchor hold you back? When's an anchor a bad idea? And again, to use that biting analogy, it's when the tides have permanently shifted. Um, in the financial markets, I think cash and bonds are a classic example. Bonds aren't the same as they were 10 or 20 years ago, they're not even the same as they were five years ago. I'm old enough to remember when bonds actually gave you a yield. So should you have as many bonds in your portfolio now as you would have five or 10 years ago? I don't think you should. So the extent to which you need some sort of anchor for your decision-making process doesn't mean that you never make a second decision. There's obviously a little bit of toing and froing around that one. And I think it's going to be a classic QPod uh, podcast, Troy, with the Johnny Farnham metaphor. So thank you for that. Uh, as the saying goes, you never let a good crisis go to waste. So I might ask a bit more of a leadership question of you both. Um, Alison, starting with you, what lessons have you learned through this crisis period? 
Thanks, Craig. I think fortunately, oh, and I, I will say fortunately, look, I'm old enough to have lived through and, and been advising on portfolios through the, the global financial crisis. And I think, you know, that was actually incredibly valuable learning experience. And many of the experiences that I learned there, which were very much about keeping cool and calm, um, keeping focused on the long term, um, communicating on a regular basis with investors to make sure that they understand what's going on to allow them to stay focused um, have been incredibly important. I think, you know, we were able to, we looked for sort of that playbook post GFC, but those snapback in markets were very, very strong. But what we need to do now is is to continue to go, well, what will be different looking forward? And I think we're in a really interesting um, and difficult time in the markets whereby, you know, we've got cash and bonds that are, are yielding close to nothing. So what does that mean for the defensive part of your portfolio? So that's certainly a question that I'm thinking about you know, a lot in terms of how do we make sure we have true diversification in our portfolios, uh, make sure that we're not taking just one source of risk, which might be equity risk of different forms. So really trying to think about, you know, I don't like the phrase, it's different this time because it, it very rarely is, but we do need to sort of think with, learn from history and have it, but then look forward and go, how do we bat, how do we manage this environment? So it is a really challenging time. So I think we have to, like Troy, I've got an eye to inflation as well as a potential sort of sleeper risk. It doesn't it feel so far away at the moment, but with the level of liquidity we have flooding into the uh, into the into the markets, but or particularly sorry through to the consumers via these um, uh, fiscal stimuluses, we do have the potential for inflation to emerge and potentially emerge quickly. So thinking about how we position our portfolios for that, um, and then, then as I say that, making sure we've got you know genuine diversification. Thanks, Alison. And yeah, I, I hear you. And we have had some false starts in previous environments in that particular one. Troy, what lessons have you learned through this period and, and what are your takeaways in terms of how you've been managing or you know running your team? Yeah, it's a good one, Craig. I think that the, the key job that we talk about here is managing risk. And when you're managing risk heading into a crisis period, you go hard, you go early and you don't die wondering. So the, the thing that we're happiest here about our actions the last three months is the way that we tackled the liquidity question, we started raising money straight away. And the reason you do that is because it buys you time and it buys you optionality. And so when markets are down 35% from peak to trough, you're not worrying about where your next dollar of liquidity is coming from. You can actually take five or 10 minutes in the day to think about, well, where would I spend my next marginal dollar? There's a huge amount of optionality value in having some of that liquidity available to you. So if part of the job here is always about managing risk, liquidity risk is one in the very short term that you have to manage very well. And if you do that, it should really help you manage the longer term risks around generating sufficiently high returns for your, your members, your fiduciaries, your ultimate end, end user of the money. Thanks, Troy. And you are... Uh provided a wonderful segue to my final question uh, because I did want to highlight the fact that as CIOs, uh, by your nature, you are very adept at managing risk. This has been a health crisis that sort of swamped into a market and an economic crisis around the world. And by their nature, black swans are very unpredictable events, Uh, although there were some alarm bells, as you alluded to earlier, Troy, with regards to the global pandemic in recent years. But on this side, around things like SARS, bird flu and Ebola, to name a few. So does this call for a new type of risk-based modelling to gauge potential outcomes? And I suppose to put you on the spot, what's your new black swan, Alison? Not not to put me on the spot at all, Craig. Uh, 
I need Black Swan. Goodness me. I'll answer the first part first if I can while I think about the latter. Um, <laughs> I like it. Go uh, for it. <laughs> I think uh, in terms of risk modelling, look, they always, I think we need to continue to think about all the various scenarios that we have based on the information that's there and also try and think about, you know, scenarios that don't seem plausible at this point of time. So, in the beginning of the, you know, we, we have quite sophisticated risk modelling and scenario and stress testing. And, and, you know, as this crisis unveiled, we sat down and we pushed that harder and we pushed it further and went, well, what could happen from here? And making sure that, you know, we had the portfolios well diversified, but maintaining that level of liquidity, as, as, as Troy alluded to, because that is the utility of liquidity in an environment like that is incredibly important. So where is the next black swan coming from? Well, by definition, it's always the unknown unknown. But, you know, things that I guess that I'm sort of keeping an eye to is is that inflation risk. And another one I think, you know, we touched on briefly, but the geopolitical risk. And I think particularly geopolitical risk from the growing divide of, of those with financial assets who are benefiting significantly from this incredible reflation of, of financial assets. And, and from those who, you know, maybe have lost their jobs and maybe don't have so many financial assets and are feeling more insecure and in, in a financial sense than, than ever. And what does that do to the political stage? And what does that do therefore to regulations and, and you know, profits, taxes, etc. in terms of that, I guess, thinking about I know if I was potentially uh, in politics and I saw some companies making some of the extraordinary profits they're making now, maybe that's something that you might want to tackle and, and think about wealth redistribution. But what does that do if you're an equity owner in those types of companies? And so I think that's a perhaps a very broad reaching question, but I think we're really at a geopolitical and a, and a wealth dispersion sense in a, in a spot where we do need to think about what that could mean in the sake of uh, in the shape of future economic landscapes. Thanks, Alison. And whilst uh, Alison's uh, thinking up her black swan uh, trial, though, she, I think she gave the answer to Sandy. I was going to say, that was my black swan. Troy, we might, uh, thank you, Alison, we might transition to you now. How do you look at this uh, current environment from that angle I, I asked in the question with regards to that health crisis nature? And how do you look at those risks going forward? Yeah, so one of the things that, that investors should be cognizant about here is if you try and build portfolios for black swans, you're almost guaranteed to fail. If I could forecast what the next black swan was going to be, I'd be a much wealthier man than I am right now. Risk for us is a process. So one of the analogies I use is to think about being a civil engineer versus a demolition expert. When you're building a portfolio, you're trying to be that engineer who's building a bridge or a road to last you know, 50 or 100 years. You want it to be sound and robust, you want it to be efficient, you want it to work under a wide range of climactic circumstances and, and user outcomes. What markets really do, though, is turn you into a demolition expert. They look for unusually weak or strong points in your portfolio, and that's almost guaranteed to be the place where markets fail. And so we've talked about liquidity for a, a couple of times on this podcast. That's one that everyone should always be cognizant about. Alison mentioned a good one as well. Just how much of our risk is really equities risk in another form of another? So I, I don't think too much about the black swan question because I can't forecast the unforecastable. What I can do is try and build a portfolio that I know can be more robust than average and try and survive the worst of what people throw at it. But it's a process rather than any particular sort of modelling format. Black swans. I won't talk about black swans. I'll talk about pain trades. What would really hurt financial market participants if they occurred? Alison stolen inflation by Inflation Ninja. So I'll talk about two others. What would happen to people if equities traded sideways for five to 10 years? 
we've seen periods like this historically, right? The transition from the, the, the super 60s into the 70s, equities essentially traded sideways for 10 to 15 years. That really hurt people because in real terms, they went backwards significantly. Another one that would certainly hurt, given we've just come out of this health crisis, have we actually seen the recession that the inverted yield curve of late 2019 was forecasting? Maybe we have and maybe we haven't. So the terrifying scenario for me would be as we get through COVID-19 and everything feels much better and we open up the economy and it turns out not as many people died as could have, that's awesome. And then sometime in late 2021 or 2022, it turns out the economy was weak before we went into COVID-19 and we've never had a chance to address the excesses and clean them out the system. And then we have another recession. I think that would be absolutely devastating to people, absolutely devastating. And you can look back at what happened in the 70s, for example, it damages people for a generation in terms of their economic and their social and their health outcomes. So this is the stuff that keeps me awake at night. It's why I'm only sleeping four hours at a time. Uh, well said, Troy. And I think it also goes a long way to sort of showing the, the important and unique roles that you both sort of share in being a chief investment officer, particularly with regards to people's superannuation and retirement savings. Thank you to you both for the time today to chat with us on QPod. And we really did value your perspectives on what is a complex, intriguing, but also a rapidly evolving set of events. So for me, I took away a lot from today. I really took away what is a really broad range of topics that as CIOs you need to be across. And in, in addition to that, be great public speakers as well. So congratulations on all that hard work and certainly coming out today in terms of your views on the markets, being aware of the risks, not just liquidity, but also those health ones we described as well and how they can impact your portfolio. And of course, who would have thought value would become the topic to talk about, Troy? But there you go. You put it out there. It's only been 10 years in the wilderness. So thank you for raising a number of great things today. Really appreciate your time and something for all our investors to consider. Thank you so much for listening to QPod today. Please subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify and have a great week ahead.